0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears,
2: folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone
1: pretend podcasting isn't boring.
2: Turn it off. I'm going to go to the house and make a little bit of a mess. I'm going to go to the house. I'm going to
3: mm mm-hmm.
4: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Dashew.
1: I prefer to go by Mr. Sophistication. Thank you very
4: much. Also back in the booth is Mr. Mark Begley.
5: I am very happy to be here again. Thanks for having me.
4: This week, we are looking at Miguel Yanzo's 2015 film, Crumbs. It's the story of a post-apocalyptic future where items from the past are given special significance as our hero, Candy, played by Daniel Tedese, goes on a quest. First, to see the witch, and then to see Santa Claus. And we're going to try to make sense of that statement as we go along. Maybe. I'm not sure if we can really spoil this film by talking about it, but we're darn well going to try to spoil it for you. So if you haven't seen Crumbs before and the second film that we're going to be talking about, Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway, definitely check those out. Come back after you've seen those. So I'm pretty sure this was a first-time watch for both of you guys. Please correct me if I'm wrong.
5: No, you are absolutely correct.
1: I wish I could correct you, but same here, I cannot. There is, I don't even know a world where this would have come across in the films that I watch other than being on this podcast, (laughs) to be perfectly fair.
4: I had no idea what this film was, anything about it. I have been shamed in the past because I've covered films from, I think, just about every continent Other than Antarctica and Africa and so I had people that were saying you should cover some African films I'm like all right, motherfuckers what African movies are there out there other than Black Girl that's like the only African film that I could say off the top of my head because I had an African world film teacher and he showed us Black Girl so I knew that film existed luckily a listener came through and said here's a whole list of stuff I picked crumbs off the list and then next year 2021 we're going to do a whole month just of African films And Chris, because you are such a go-for-it type of person, you'll probably be with me on part of that journey.
1: And what I find funny about that is that they picked a film from 2015 as one of the films of African cinema to watch. Because like you've mentioned on my own podcast, Shameless Cross Promotion, The Culture Cast, we have not covered a lot of African cinema either. And it's a little surprising to me, I don't know about y'all, that it's a film from 2015 made by a, a Spanish filmmaker and this is coming up. it's it's pretty indicative to me of whoever made the list that this is important to them and it's worth us watching to get a little bit ahead of myself though I know you didn't ask me, I would agree with them.
5: I have very like zero uh, experience with with African films so we <laughs> I guess it's just uh, gonna be us three white dudes talking about African films.
1: I mean, it's kind of a shame in a way, because I would say, Mark, I don't know about you, as Westerners, when it comes to films we're seeing that aren't part of our inherently American or Westernized culture, it's a lot of Japanese film. It's a lot of Asian cinema and European cinema. Some Bollywood, and Mike, we talked about that earlier this year. We talked about Bollywood films. But African cinema is just – African and South American cinema are – pretty much unknown expanses to me completely. Yeah, I think
5: it's something that you really need to actively pursue. It's not being and that's, you know, of course, on on us as well for not pursuing it. But I can't even think of other titles that I know of uh, of African films. And I have not yet seen black girls, so I can't even speak to that.
1: Does District 9 count? It is technically a South African filmmaker, Neil Blomkamp. Yeah, it is South African.
4: No, I I think you're right.
1: I mean it's wild to think. But that movie's don't don't go watch Chappie for the love of it. (laughs)
4: Don't see Chappie. You can skip Elysium (laughs) as well if you want to. It's an entire continent. How many? Like fifty some countries. You know, unique countries, different cultures, different languages. Who knows what type of film is over there ripe for the watching. I mean, I am a little familiar with Nigerian film, just because there was a documentary about Nollywood films, and there's clips out there on the internet, and I've heard God Awful Movies talk about some different Nigerian films. Those are the ones where you see, like, it's almost that, like, Birdemic level of special effects, where it's like,
1: Pretty Liars 1 is where the why are you running? That that whole internet meme, that's from Nigerian film, Nollywood films.
4: Wow, I don't even know that meme.
1: Yeah, so there's a meme on the internet. It's it's a clip completely taken out of context from Pretty Liars 1, but it's um it's a it's a man asking a woman who's running away from me. He's, he keeps asking her, Why are you running? But he's asking in a very heavy Nigerian accent. And the internet took it upon themselves to use it in comedic ways but that's i think a lot of people have had experience or exposure to Nigerian film without even knowing about it which is sad in a way cuz they're it being taken out of context probably doesn't do the movie even if it's not very good it doesn't do it any justice
4: right i think just even i Reddit today there was a little clip of uh what is it beware the devil 666 or something and i was like okay yeah i'm familiar with this title i'm familiar with some of these scenes but I've never watched the entire movie. I mean, I did a screening of um, the African version of Purple Rain oh, a few months ago when I was doing a, a watch party, and people, including me, really enjoyed it. It was really in- interesting to watch and to... See it and how it kind of followed some of the same story beats of Purple Rain, but then had its whole own thing going on. And definitely when it came to the music, it was so completely different, but it was fascinating. It was, and it was very entertaining. So it's, it's just wild that there is this whole world of film that we are so unfamiliar with that we just get these little glimpses of stuff i mean and yeah i will admit like this is a major blind spot for me brazilian film was a major blind spot for me and really what we watched what five films six films chris so it's like we're no experts uh by any stretch of the imagination but at least like we started we put a a toe into brazilian cinema this year
1: farther along than i was at the beginning of the year for sure i didn't think in 2020, I would be adding Brazilian cinema to my list of things that I've watched a significant amount of, at least for the amount that I had watched before. But yeah, to your point, it's it's such a blind spot. And like you said, Mark, you have to try. You have to put in the effort to go out of your way to find these films, because also on top of everything else, some of these films aren't exactly easy to find.
5: Going kind of back to, you know, being presented with this on your list, Mike, and uh, mistaking it for something else. And Chris, you also brought up, like, I don't know when this would have come across my view anyway. I, I think that because of his second movie, I may have found out about this on Twitter. Um, if I hadn't already been looking forward to doing this episode with the release of Jesus shows you the way to the highway, cause it's on that disc and, you know, following arrow and people that, are involved with Arrow or who just collect Arrow and and buy their stuff. I just kept seeing that and I'm like, oh, this is the dude from Crumbs. So, uh, you know, that may have led me to Crumbs, but otherwise, this would have passed me by completely.
4: Yeah, I definitely think that many more people have heard of Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway. Hopefully people have seen it. Because, spoiler alert, I loved it. And Crumbs is interesting to me because you can see the beginning of where he went to Jesus Shows You the Way. But this one, Crumbs, is much – I don't want to say it's less ambitious because it's still a very ambitious film. It's just not as batshit crazy as Jesus Shows You the Way.
1: I would agree Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway is a much more ambitious film. But I think Crumbs, which – is barely a full-length feature. It is an hour and eight minutes long. I think it has a stronger and much more important message than Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway does, because for me, Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway, like you said, Mike, very ambitious, but at the same time, very muddle-headed, for me at least. I found Crumbs to be a much more streamlined, direct, message and a story being told and jesus shows you the way to the highway has a lot of stuff going on and we'll get to it i'm sure that is just completely fucking insane like that's the only way to describe it if you if you came into a room someone watching a scene from jesus shows you the way to the highway you have no fucking idea what they're watching rightfully so because there's stuff that happens in that movie that even i'm still kind of trying to unpack and decipher maybe what miguel was going for
4: the more you watch both of these films, the more you get out of it. Like I didn't even catch the, I know that one of the characters is Santa Claus in crumbs, but I didn't catch that. It is a a fake plastic Christmas tree that candy brings to birdie right near the beginning of the film. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So there's a whole Christmas theme that's going on with this. And it's a very interesting film that, It is in this really super desolate landscape. Some of it is absolutely beautiful. Some of it is really stark. And this whole idea of things from the past. And I love these breaks that we get. I think we get maybe, what, four of them throughout the entire film, where we get this narrator, who I think is the shopkeeper that we'll see who tells the story of these found objects and makes up this whole fake history to these items that are any more they're from our past because you know, these plastic Ninja Turtles or the little baby Jesus figurine, the um Michael Jackson's Dangerous album. And I can't remember what the last thing is. Oh, the,
5: the laser sword. The Max Steel sword.
1: There's also a picture of Michael Jordan, which the character of Birdie is like praying to or are kind of admonishing for not giving her the divine intervention that she was hoping for.
4: And we get this whole thing of how these things were from so long ago, and you're wondering then, are they really from that long ago? Because they have fake histories to them. How long ago was this world that these people are living in? is it really that old or is it just, you know, a few years old and the world has turned to shit that quickly because they're not necessarily living in the best of times and the way that Bertie lives in this uh, abandoned uh, bowling alley and how the ball return will just mysteriously start working. And the ball return is kind of a portal to Santa Claus. You can hear him speaking through the ball return I know that this doesn't necessarily make sense when people are hearing this, but it makes sense kind of in context
5: of the film. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. And I really enjoyed, you mentioned Mike, the, the landscape. And I think what caught me the first time I watched this was the very opening of the film and opening on those, um, salt deposits in Ethiopia. And later on in the movie, when he's on his trek, I don't know why I thought of it. I watched Paris, Texas recently, and I hadn't seen it in years. And one of the things I remember about the first time I saw it was, oh, my God, how long are we going to follow this guy walking through the desert? But, you know, later on in life, I learned to really enjoy those scenes. And, you know, the landscape isn't necessarily similar, but I, for some reason, um, just thought about that a lone man, wandering through this really beautiful um, scenery
1: yeah, the opening act of this film is a very, it's very quiet and it's very slow and methodical in its way that it introduces you to Daniel Tedese's character and Quino Pinheiro's character. And I mean, cause Quino Pinheiro plays a Nazi and it kind of sets the tone. And I'm assuming this is the character we see at the beginning of the film who's wearing Mickey Mouse ears and a, and a gas mask. And it sets the tone immediately when these two characters kind of see one another. The imagery alone in this film, like you just mentioned, Mark, I mean, the way the film opens is so interesting and unique. And then you see more of the imagery coming through as Daniel Tedese's character is roaming this wasteland. And while it does feel foreign, there is something recognizable about it, which I think helps kind of ease you into the film and the world that it's slowly constructing around its characters.
4: Yeah, this is very much that... Mad Max type of world where we are repurposing things from the world that we know as you know the the three of us talking about this movie the world that we understand and then seeing them reused in different ways you know seeing Michael Jordan as the figure in this altar that they are praying to and and how the fetishization of the past has happened. This idea of her having a garden of dwarf trees. It's, it's, I always appreciate seeing how things in our present can be twisted and, and made different in a post-apocalyptic world.
1: And I also appreciate that the film doesn't take it upon itself to try to beat us over the head with how the world got here. It just kind of says the world is what it is now. This is the world that these characters inhabit. And now you're going to see how they live in this world. It doesn't spend 10, 15 minutes, which would have been overkill in a film that's barely an hour long, trying to explain how things are the way they are and why things are the way they are. It just kind of goes. And like you mentioned with uh, Mingitsu Berhana, who plays the shop owner, I feel like his character is kind of where we get some exposition. Because, like you said, he's inventing these stories, or he's relaying these stories to the people that have these objects, and it just works. And it's really refreshing to see a film not beat you over the head with, and here's why this is, and here's why this is. It's like, nope, you don't have to treat us like idiots, just go for it. This is not the Book of Eli. Right, I don't need to hear every reason why Teenager Ninja Turtle toys and plastic swords are being treated as gold.
5: I really like that. The like you mentioned, Mike, how we don't know how long this has been going on. We don't, they talk about, I think the third century and it's like, well, when was that? And, you know, in, in the interview that you have with the director, he mentions his use of objects, these artifacts and how, you know, they serve a purpose, like a car serves a purpose to get you from point A to point B, but what kind of car you have uh, says a lot about, you generally and uh, symbolizes all these other things and how, and these are more mundane objects, but taking that, you know, we all recognize the teenage mutant Ninja Turtle. Uh, Some of the masks that are worn just made me think of like Power Rangers, uh, the max steel sword, you know, as a, as a toy from, I don't know, I think the nineties or something. And uh, so it's like, well, is this, is this, you know, really far past? Is this just recent past? Uh, and then you you don't know what a lot of stuff is that's going on. You don't understand what the spaceship is in the sky. You don't uh, understand the idea of the, the bowling alley portal. And that can be frustrating if you never find out. But it's not really the point of the movie. So I just kind of went along and really enjoyed Not being explained to, which I guess is a roundabout way of saying that. And you guys have both already said it, but I appreciated that. I could kind of see how maybe it would be frustrating, though. You know, what what is going on? Who are these people? What's the time frame? But for me, none of that really mattered in, in Crumb's.
4: Well and it also gives your brain a chance to make connections. You know, you mentioned the spaceship and then towards the end when he goes to see Santa Claus he takes off his shirt and he's got the Superman symbol on there and he's like, I'm not a human, I'm an alien. And it's like, oh, okay, well maybe he's from the spaceship. This whole idea of that's right, Superman isn't of our Earth, he is an actual alien. And if he's identifying with Superman Okay. So it's like it gives you time to just connect these dots and make, you know, observations and think, well, maybe this is this and maybe this is that. But I'm not setting any of those. You could tell me, no, you're full of shit. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, I believe it.
1: Well, the other, another film that this reminded me of, and it's more in the tones of the film or the themes, I guess it, it more reminds me of it in the themes of the film. And this is, it's a terrible example, but it is African cinema. The gods must be crazy. Because you have an object in that film, the Coke bottle, that falls from the sky, and you have the character who is trying to assign meaning and importance to, like we've already talked about, what is ostensibly an everyday object in a Coke bottle, or in this film, Teenager Ninja Turtle toy, plastic sword, you could probably go get from the Dollar Tree. And it is interesting to see how other cultures in The Gods Must Be Crazy, it is an African tribesman in this film, it's post-apocalyptic future to see people assigning meaning and values to objects that we know don't have any of those re- really don't have any of those meanings. But once you assign a meaning to something, you can't undo that. Once you assign a good or interesting story to an object, you know, forever it'll be associated with that. And you can't, it's, it's harder to undo it than it is to just leave it alone.
5: Well, and that's sort of where the shopkeeper comes in assigning the value to these uh, items of completely arbitrary value and is all. i mean I, I don't know i don't recognize the money system that they're using and i don't know if it's even really ethiopian money that they're discussing but his his counter offer is always like about 100,000 times less than what they're asking for so you know they want 65,000 of whatever that unit of money is and he's saying well i'll give you uh, Three hundred, but and if I'm not mistaken, and I guess maybe I shouldn't spoil it this far ahead. But concerning the spaceship, uh, he seems like he's the one that gets the seat for it at the end of the movie. I don't know if we want to say that right now, but or if the, if I'm mistaken in in assuming that,
1: I don't think that that assumption's wrong. The the point of the spaceship, at least in my mind, was to collect goods and items from past civilizations. That's what it seemed like. I mean, the spaceship has like a hand on it. Miguel Janso, in his interview with you, didn't ascribe meaning to it, which I appreciate given that there are other filmmakers who do surrealism and similar, you know, approaching similar topics like David Lynch, who have gone on record and said, I don't want to ascribe meaning to this. It's better if I don't so that you can't be wrong. And it allows the ability for the viewer to come to their own conclusions and not feel like they're wrong. And I appreciate that about him and the way he tells the story in this film.
4: You know, Chris, I really think that your Gods must be crazy nod is is there because people are giving candy things a lot of times and for whatever reason they always seem to end up at the shopkeepers. But one of the few things that is given to candy that doesn't end up at the shopkeepers is a bottle of Coca-Cola. And we really spend a long time watching Daniel drinking that bottle of Coca-Cola.
1: It it can't be coincidental. And if it is, Miguel Yanso is just operating on a same wavelength, the cosmic wavelength. You know, Coca-Cola, recognizable. Everybody knows what it looks like for the most part, unless you're an African tribesman, apparently. And then we'll make a whole movie about it.
4: They keep talking about Mologon, and I was just like, "Is that supposed to be like Mongolian? Is it like a, a, a bastardization of Mongolian?" Not that Mongolia is anywhere near Ethiopia, but they keep talking about these Mo- Mologon warriors, and at one point, uh, can't even meets one. He follows this uh, train track, uh, and there's all these dinosaurs that are lined up on it, and the baby Jesus. And he runs across this guy who's like, I'm a warrior. I'm a mulligan warrior. And I think he ends up giving Candy the the, the baby Jesus uh, figurine. And I keep ascribing the the value of baby
5: Jesus to it. Uh, It could be something completely else, but just to have this little baby there. I'm pretty sure it's a nativity scene Jesus. Because it's on a bed of hay, uh, you know. If it had, I, I mean, that's what I saw. Um, if it had been like a little, you know, for a, a dollhouse or something, it probably would have had a crib or a pillow or something. It looked like a. Uh, it was supposed to be hay to me. Which kind of ties into Candy and Birdie, and I think
4: they're about to have a baby. So it's almost like this Mary and Joseph type situation with the baby that they're about to have, because it feels like. And I didn't realize how much Birdie was in it until I watched this film the second time. I thought she was just kind of like
5: a side character, but she's in the movie quite a bit. Caught this kind of on the second time as well. Her dreams, or I guess their dreams, and it seemed almost like they were ecstatic dreams or even sexual dreams. And I uh, was wondering, am I supposed to think that she's ha- uh, being impregnated this way? That would kind of make sense, but the baby Jesus. And I thought, well, I, uh, am I? I guess we can all, you know, say we take things a little too far. But it just seemed weird. Not that they weren't having a physical relationship, or that you shouldn't assume that they weren't. But um, it just seemed like her dreams were very erotic in nature. And even though she wasn't saying anything in that vein, she she was experiencing some kind of feeling, and it could either be erotic or kind of uh, either that or uh, almost painful in a way. It just seemed like they really affected her. When I did notice that she was saying the names of a lot of men
4: in her dreams, like Justin Bieber, the fourth, Stephen Hawking, the third Paul McCartney, the ninth, you know, and saying we'll meet in the spaceship. So I'm like, okay, I didn't know, necessarily hear, you know, Britney Spears, the 14th or anything. It seemed like it was all men that she was dreaming about. I'm still not sure why, Candy had to go to Santa Claus, but I did appreciate that Santa Claus, it feels like he's a fraud. When he finally gets there, it feels like Santa is just saying the lines, and he
5: really doesn't have the power that Candy ascribed to him. Well, I love how he said, right when he got there, you need to write it down and send it in the mail. That's how this works.
1: (laughs) I didn't understand the importance of Santa Claus as a character being introduced into this film, right? Because Miguel Yonso, is very metered in the things that he's doing in this film compared to Jesus Shows You the Way. And everything seems very specific and like he's doing it for a specific reason. And I can't seem to suss out what Santa Claus meant. I kind of picked up on what some of the other things meant. But the fact that you've introduced Santa Claus, Santa Claus is kind of so important to the telling of this story because that's the entire journey that that Daniel Tadase's character goes on. I just, I I, did, did y'all pick up on what it was? I I could not for the life of me figure out what they were trying to say with the Santa Claus character, unless it's giving people unnecessary gifts that they end up getting value ascribed to them. that maybe isn't the value. I
5: honestly can't say that I picked up on a specific reason why it had to be Santa Claus. Other than, you know, he uh, grants people's wishes in a way. Um, But it could have been any number, I think, of of either real or uh, imaginary figures. But in in the grand scheme of things, why Santa Claus and why the Christmas tree at the beginning? I just kind of took it as, you you know, again, these are symbols and ascribe to them what you will. He reminded me of the wizard from The Wizard of Oz, and
4: if, and that's what it felt like having the witch, because that's another figure that Candy goes to see is the witch, and the witch sends him on his way. Like I thought she was going to be the end game to make it to the witch, but she's actually just like a halfway point, and then he ends up going to Santa Claus, and then when when we find out that Santa can't do anything for him, really, it felt like the way that we find out the the wizard doesn't have any powers. You know, Oz never did give nothing to the Tin Man that he didn't already have. I was very happy to see the appearance of one of the Indian versions of Superman. That was very nice. I've seen that film before, so it was very nice to see those. And then that interesting thing that is being shown on a film, and that it feels like the projectionist recognizes Candy.
5: Though, did the projectionist have eyes? I don't think so. Yeah, that... Don't think he did. Because he said, you know, give me your hand, and he recognized him from his hand, and I that was kind of um, touching to me, I, and I felt like, I don't think that they pushed the idea as far, maybe, as they could have with wondering whether Candy was maybe suffering a delusion, because I didn't really pick up on it until this second viewing and thinking, okay, you know, he keeps talking about how he's an alien and getting back to his planet. And of course that goes along with the whole Superman thing, as you mentioned, Mike, but you know, then this guy touches him and says, Oh yeah, you know, I remember you and you came here all the time and watched this movie. And you're like, Oh, welcome back. Okay. Did he have a traumatic childhood or what? what? Since there was a spaceship floating high above Their land didn't really think that it was odd that he thought he was alien, but this kind of made it think like, no, you're a human man. You were a human boy and you used to come and watch Indian Superman all the time when you were a kid, because I think his dad, dad would take him there and leave him there. And so it kind of, I don't know, it, I guess I maybe just missed it the first time I watched it and caught it this time, but it kind of gave another little, um, hint of sadness to the film for me and what seems like a really sad film uh, overall. Now, this second time I watched it.
1: Well, there's never any explanation given as to why, I mean, there is outside of, you know, he, he wants to be with birdie, but, and, and you know, it's, there's never really any explanation given as to why candy is doing what he's doing. And like you've mentioned, Mark, I mean, this idea that he doesn't belong in this society and he's an alien, Like you said, the first time I watched it, I was in the same boat as you. I was like, well, there's an alien spaceship, of course. But to your point, there is this kind of unreliable, not narrator, but unreliable character aspect of the film. Because my second viewing, I came away thinking, no, he's just a delusional character who is trying to explain why he is the way that he is, as opposed to just kind of accepting things are the way they are. He's like, I'm, I'm an alien. I'm not from here that that that'll explain why I look the way that I do, I act the way that I am and I am who I am and it's like that's well that's fine that's if that's not reality that's not reality but I guess if you construct your own reality it can
4: be. We've
1: gone a half an hour with,
4: without even saying that Daniel Tedesse does not look like a lot of people look. His body is kind of twisted up, and you can see like a long scar on one of his arms where maybe he had surgery or something before. And he just... He looks like... It would be painful for him to do a lot of movements. Um, he's, he's not the, um, a normal, let's say a, a regular height. I hate using normal as a term. Um, he's definitely a shorter stature person. So yeah, he does not fit into the mold. And I think that's one reason too, why he makes such a compelling hero is because he is fighting everything. Like this whole world could be his enemy, even if it was just our day-to-day world, much less this post-apocalyptic landscape where he is on this quest. And for me, my idea of the quest that he's on is maybe to get that seat on the spaceship because he doesn't feel like he's part of this world, because he thinks he's an alien. But I don't know. And I keep thinking it has to have something to do with Bertie because
5: it feels like he would live and die for Bertie. We don't really get the idea of of her thoughts about who he is, uh, other, than, other than that she loves him. But then that makes me think, well, what is the deal with the portal? Because she's obviously hearing Santa Claus sing and talk through that and speaking to him through that. So this isn't necessarily a part of maybe Candy's delusions. Uh, these odd things do happen. And there is a spaceship, according to the logic of the film, there is a spaceship with a hand, a, like mannequin hand. On top of it floating in the sky miles above. so I guess that's why I kind of took it not as uh, hard and true either way maybe the first time I watched it that okay this is this guy's um, you know suffering delusions or this guy is is an alien you know there's a little more ambiguity there
1: but I don't think that ambiguity hurts my
5: ability to enjoy the film. Oh no 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 not at all. I don't mind ambiguity I don't mind ambiguity in film.
1: Well, here's the thing. I don't mind ambiguity in film to a point. And this film doesn't run in circles of films that use ambiguity as kind of a crutch. This film uses ambiguity as just kind of a, this is the way it is. And I like that. I mean, I, I honestly don't know what happens at the end of this film. I have kind of my druthers as to what I think happens. But... I mean, the way the film ends and the last kind of 10-15 minutes of the film, I've watched it several times now and I'm still not sure I'm any closer now than I was before as to figuring out kind of where the film and the characters ultimately end up.
5: And if you're, you know, a fan of David Lynch, that's okay. Ambiguity is okay. <laughs> leaving a, Leaving a film not knowing what the hell just happened can be okay. If it's if it's, not even if it's done on purpose, but uh you know if it really doesn't matter i guess and you can then say this wasn't just a fault of writing this was you know these things are open we don't need to know this we don't need to know how ninja turtle toys got here or why they're ascribed value it just is that's the world that they live in
4: which is funny because the world that we live in right now some of these toys could potentially have value. It's that weird thing of like collectors and, you know, <laughs> is, it, is there still, is the, uh, the, the little hole that you use to, uh, uh, to hang the Star Wars figure, uh, on the rack? Is that, uh, has that been perforated all the way through? Is it a virgin? Is it not? You know, like, oh, well, that will make it even a higher value if it isn't.
5: I think I know some people that would pay good money for that bootleg Ninja Ninja Turtles. So. Especially the way that its the
4: hands are up and it's on the chain. It looks pretty boss. But yeah, and at least, like you said before, Chris, this is, what, 68 minutes? So it's not like this movie is overstaying its welcome. It's not like we're sitting here for three hours going, what the hell is going on in this movie? <laughs> I can handle 68 minutes with some ambiguity as long as it has... Some compelling characters, some interesting things going on, and it is making me question stuff and not just like bash
5: my head against the wall. Yeah. I mean, there's a story. There's, there's things going on. He has a task. He has a, an arc. Uh, you know, they, there are, there's a definite goal and whether they achieve it or not or whether. That kind of thing, that kind of ambiguity doesn't bother me, whether we never find out, did they make it? Are they going to have their baby? Is it the star baby? Is it, you know, all this stuff, it doesn't really matter. The film ends and and you can just go along with whatever you got from it. And I mean, it does help that it's not three hours as well, but
1: a lot of film sins can be really exacerbated by a three hour (laughs) runtime by a three hour. I mean, again, it's, I mean, again, I'm not saying anything that I don't think the two of us aren't or The three of us aren't thinking when you keep a story as kind of short and succinct as crumbs is a lot of sins can be forgiven because your story is straight to the point. I mean, if this film had been three hours long, I mean, even in something like Jesus shows you the way to the highway, which is another, you know, 30 plus minutes on top of this film, that's when my patience starts to kind of switch a little bit and I become less forgiving. And with this film, even if the ending is hyper ambiguous, like you said, Mark, and we don't know if the, if their kind of story does have a a definitive ending, I forgive a lot more when the film gets straight to the point and doesn't spend a lot of time spinning its wheels. And I, I really appreciate Miguel Yanso's way of just kind of just getting directly to the point. And he does it and Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway as well. I think this film is a better example of it, though.
5: Yeah, and it's a love story and, and they're together at the end. So that's the end. That's the end of the story as far as me watching it goes.
1: See, I didn't interpret the ending as they were together.
4: I... Picture them as together, even though she does ask if it's a dream that he's back with her.
1: I thought he died.
4: Oh wow! Why did you? I did not like.
1: I I just I just saw his character standing there at the end, and just I mean, because she says that Santa Claus is a murderer, and I just kind of assumed that he died. I don't know. I mean, again, the way that final act is told with Bertie's character, kind of seeing him sitting there, it's very like you just said, Mike. It's very dream. Dream-esque. It's very dreamy. It's very unspecific in how they're showing his character just appearing to her. And that kind of sewed within me some kind of questions as to whether or not this is real. What's taking place? Can we actually trust what's taking place on screen? Like, I'm not looking for ambiguity. It just seemed like they gave ambiguity kind of outright.
5: Now I have to change my whole... Thought and say if that's if that's the end of the movie, then I did not like it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean Santa does smack him across the face with a bicycle,
4: but I just didn't take it that he was killed by that. So I don't know. I like that we aren't sitting here going, yes, for sure it's this or that.
1: I am right there with you in that regard. Like that that's the success of the film in my mind. Is it it does have a little level of ambiguity without you know, like you said, Mark, just being like, oh, I'm just lazy and I didn't write it that well.
5: Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. He, I didn't even enter my mind. And when you said that, I was like, what are you talking
1: about? So, <laughs> Oops, sorry.
5: <laughs> but that's great because now I can on the third time I can watch it and look for any hints uh, that ex- maybe explain it one way or the other. Because I will be watching it again at some point. so.
1: And I and it it does benefit because I think we've all talked about this already. It does benefit from rewatching.
5: Yeah, I mean I watched it I think right when Mike sent it originally almost a year ago now and and didn't I just watched it to watch it. I didn't watch it to pay attention and and pick things out of it since you know months away from the episode. So let's go ahead and
4: take a break and we're going to play an interview with director Miguel Yanso and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages.
0: And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code OOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com.
3: From page to page screen, to screen.
4: Movie cast. so they have nine times out of ten they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage
0: can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look, but sometimes it works out and turns out even better.
1: Gregor Fisher his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared at X Men First Class
3: together. I've got to say the very Harold and
5: Kumar 3D Christmas. Now that. <laughs> it makes you want to rush out. It's about the acting, about the writing. That's really what theatre is for
2: me. Probably had more names than, uh, than
4: Prince or whatever. Never mind. There's a joke for the oldies. People um, be like, like who's, who's
2: Prince? I'll who's he? Like. I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys going, right, okay, so you're a
4: psycho. Right, can you ice skate?
6: Head over to iTunes, Spreaker and Stitcher and put in the search
4: box from page to screen.
2: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode... That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
4: How did you decide that you wanted to be a filmmaker?
6: When I was 18, so more than 20 years ago, yeah, I was writing because I didn't know how to make films. So I was with a friend uh, Ivan, my friend Ivan, he was shooting the, the the sword films, and I was writing because I was I always uh, like to read, and and then after some time I realized that it was only me who was able to kind of shot that crazy <laughs> shit that was coming into my head. No, then no nobody else. So. Then I, I I thought like I told you yeah, when I went to Ethiopia I start thinking like okay maybe this is time to to do my 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 stuff. So you grew up in
4: Madrid? Uh, yes, I did. So he was making films, or so you hadn't picked up a camera at that point?
6: Uh, yeah, well, we were doing things together, and but and we we even made a, a, shot, a, a, a future a feature film in Madrid, but it didn't go anywhere. And I don't know, then, then when I moved to Ethiopia, I was doing the same stuff, but maybe I grabbed a little bit more attention internationally because it was Ethiopia or, and also gave me another perspective, no? But when I was doing things in Madrid, we were very underground. Also, I, I was I having playing in, in bands since, uh, so the, the atmosphere in Madrid was really interesting back in time because we had all these punk bands. And I played the drums, and so it was a big inspiration. Like it was very, how can I say, polyphathetic, Like the, the different musicians, painters, uh, filmmakers, and we all going were going to the I don't know gigs and shows, and so it was quite cool. Madrid in the beginning, of end of the nineties, beginning of the two thousands. Yeah. So why Ethiopia? What, what took you there? I wanted to, to kind of explore Africa because I didn't trust what the media was saying. Fake news are something old. It's it's not only new, but you know, everything, we were always talking about famine and disasters and, and I really wanted to know other aspects and other. So I got a, a kind of a, how can I say, like a scholarship to work for the embassy of Spain. And and I had a friend. I made a friend in a film festival in an African film festival in Spain. It was quite funny because I told him he was from Ethiopia. So I said I, I'm gonna uh, visit you sometime. Sometime, and he and then he gave me his email, and I was writing it to his email. Hey, I'm going to Ethiopia, but he never replied because I think he was not using that email anymore. So and then I went to Addis Ababa, and I I think I it was like. The first seven days, something I was in, and I go in, into a supermarket and he was there. <laughs> and so I said, what the fuck are you doing here? So, uh, uh, one of the reasons I came, it was because, you know, you're my friend and I was, I wanted to visit you. Fuck, but, and I send you an email, but you never replied. That's so, so, and, 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 and then, um actually he's now one of the producers of my film so it's, uh, yeah he's my best friend one of my best friends daniel diaworko and a uh, producer so everything is start restarting a supermarket in Addis Abel. but basically yeah i wanted to to explore to know deeper and to explore and kind of this adventure like werner herzog you know this ad- adventure feeling <laughs> so
4: so what were those early short films like for you, and and how did you actually start making those?
6: The first one I made in Ethiopia was it was called Where Is My Dog? And the idea was uh, from a friend of mine, uh, Johannes Feleke. So we made it together, and it was about uh, a dog that get lost in the streets of Addis Abeba. So some street kids try to find it. It was kind of a mockumentary documentary. So I wanted to... Kind of reflect on the situation that was happening in Africa because I, I didn't see Addis uh, Ababa as something belonging to the past, but more something belonging to the future. So, and a little bit of this topic future because I saw in the city things that may happen in, <laughs> in our cities in Europe, the same, no? The same, well, a chaotic situation. Uh, I always said that. It was kind of easier for me to, to find a recording of Beyoncé in the streets of Addis Abeba than to find a recording of the, of the Ethiopian star Mahmoud Ahmed or Alemayu Sete, no? I was trying to get books from Ethiopia, from Ethiopian writers, and it was impossible, but it was very easy to find books like How to Be Obama or Bill Gates or whatever, you know, so. So yeah, all these things make me kind of reflect on a little bit on the situation there and and it was inspiring for, for making the first short films. Yeah. This craziness of the city.
4: There are some countries and some places where they protect their culture so much and it's just no no foreign influences are allowed, but it sounds like they were just flooded with other people's culture.
6: Ethiopia is very conservative in that way so it's very protective there's no McDonald's in Addis Ababa and but at the same time uh yeah at the same time you 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 should really dig and kind of to to find to find interesting stuff it's not at hand if you the things you find at hand are very cheap kind of uh globalization whatever you call it like uh, objects, no? But So you have to really dig into the culture to find something uh, interesting. What's the language there? How are you getting around uh, lingually? There are many languages in Ethiopia, but Amharic, Oromo, Tigrinya, actually there are uh, uh, dozens of language because in the southern nations, you have the Dorse, the Mursi, uh, Desanesh, so the earth. But the, the common language is uh, Amharic. But I speak very few Amharic, um, so I was uh, speaking in English. So, uh, which is also a disaster because I'm from Spain. <laughs>
4: so, Tell me, when do you meet uh, Daniel? Is it Tedese?
6: It was very funny because I met him in 2008 in the, in the Ethiopian National Theater, and he was performing a Spanish play, uh, "Blood Weddings" by Lorca. <laughs> you know, so it's a kind of a very Tarantino, Tarantinesque film. Uh, where it, it, blood happens in a wedding, you know, the two families start kind of, um fighting and, and, uh, it was very funny because Daniel was and it's supposed to be a drama, you know, one of these strong tragedies, dramas, like blood dramas, but, and, and Daniel was, <laughs> Daniel was the um, one of the, the, I mean, the, the, uh, the groom. And it was kind of funny, you know, because they turn it into some, yeah, kind of like a tragic comedy, or like a like a yeah like a comedy with Daniel there. I don't know interpretations. No? <laughs> so I said, like, who is this guy? And he was a friend of uh, my friend Johannes, because he he took part in he was playing in his film in his previous films in the sword films together. So it was really I was really lucky. He seems to
4: be kind of almost like your muse now.
6: Actually, yeah, at the beginning, uh, uh, Daniel was, for everyone in in Addis Abeba, kind of a secondary actor. But I find very, and you don't believe, ah, it's a secondary actor. You don't believe these kind of actors can be your your main character, right? Because they are not kind of classical, no? They are not classical beauty or classical, I don't know, hero, right? But then I start, why not, you know, like... uh, And and then I start reflecting that uh, he represented more like a tragic hero than an epic hero, right? Because the epic heroes are these Hollywood heroes, you know, that they're going to make it, and they're super strong and six-pack. and (laughs) But Daniel was somehow, I identify a little bit more with him uh, because he was kind of a tragic hero, which is more the Odyssey, right? Like somebody that tries to make it good and tries to make it and, 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 and but he, there is always a stronger, a force, there is a stronger than him, which is the fate and always, uh, kind of, um, he always fails. And, and, and so I, I like this kind of tragic comedy aspect of Daniel, a weak person, but brave at the same time, but, um, and sensitive and, 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 yeah, empathic, uh, but not super, you know, muscle.
4: So tell me about crumbs. How does crumbs come about?
6: Uh, we made a short film before called Chiguerale. It was about a clone of, clone of Hitler that goes into different bars in Salvador. <laughs> and so we start joking about these kind of things. We we went to the south of of Ethiopia, and we enter in a, one of these mad houses and the madhouse was full of, uh, I mean, all inside covered with, uh, with a sc- a skyscrapers from, from Dubai, you know, like the newspapers with the sky skyscrapers. So like, a, what? <laughs> like, why on earth? Like, why do you have all these skyscrapers here? No, because I, the guy said, I like it very big. So the, the guy was living in a madhouse, but he was dreaming of living in one of these Dubai um, uh, buildings, right? So I start seeing the contrast. The contrast between the, um, the objects and the people the remaining recycling uh, all this and 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 we start joke a lot with uh, my friend uh, Israel we start joking a lot about um, the meaning of the objects in 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 and, and and then we we start creating cramps. I don't know one thing took to the other, but uh, in the case of Hitler, it was like we the ref, basic reflection was if Hitler assists and comes to Addis Abeba, he's not gonna be very successful. I mean, it was like kind <clears throat> you know what I mean. I, I don't I don't want to make uh, dark jokes because can be sensitive, and because I know really that Hitler is I mean it's evil, but the evil. Was possible because of an industrial society, right? The, the killing machine, the the, the the machine that based it on a scientific work, you know, the, a, a killing machinery. So we imagine the same killing machinery in Addis Abeba and nothing was going to work, you know. And yeah, it's a dark joke, but at the same time, you know, and then we start kind of thinking about this contrast.
4: It's interesting that you brought up the culture stuff because that plays such an important part in Crumbs, those artifacts that they find and the history of the artifacts and just the kind of made up history of like the Ninja Turtle.
6: When I went to these trips to the south of Ethiopia, I found that the people were kind of lost with the meaning of these new objects, No, like, um, yeah, why you live in a madhouse, but you dream with big buildings and all this stuff. And so I try to make crumbs as um, you know a post-apocalyptic thing to the, a new meaning to your life. You have to give a meaning to your life. You have to give a meaning to the objects because you don't know what they were created for. And so I kind of start discovering this the symbolic the symbolism of the objects. The objects are not only something you use, but something that has also a, um, a a symbolic meaning. For instance. Uh, to make it super easy we use a ferrari a ferrari to go to i don't know to a city but we don't have a ferrari because it takes you it takes you to the city right the ferrari has a, a symbolic meaning it has a status it has uh the same with the toys i don't know i remember this for instance um this uh, uh what, what what were the the Kent and Barbie are not just toys, right? They represent a way that the uh, that the women should be, a uh, way of relation, the idea of happiness. So then I start reflecting about these objects, no, and what happened in an apocalypse when the meaning of the objects is uh, is lost, you know, because we don't know what a ninja turtle is anymore, and we have to create it. And I think there is a certain freedom in subverting and creating the meaning you know that uh, the meaning of a poster of Michael Jordan, the meaning of a poster um, uh, vinyl of uh, michael Jackson I don't know uh, there is a certain uh, how can I say like a happiness in creating and subverting uh, the the symbolic the, the symbol.
4: So, how is it shooting your first feature film and then also shooting your first feature film in Africa?
6: It was quite easy because uh, I was living there, and also the director of photography Israel was living there, and he's my long i mean he we, we know each other for a long long time, and we were traveling a lot and collecting places for our future film like so it, it didn't so we were kind of for we, we traveled for like four years and we were collecting abandoned places. Yeah, that place looks like fantastic. Like, for instance, if you remember, there is a train tracks and, and that train tracks, uh, we think we discovered in 2010 and we thought they were from the seventies, but actually they were put by the European Union there like in 2006 or something. <laughs> Yes 4 years before we went and 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 we didn't know what was going what, uh, I mean the um, we didn't know what kind of film we were going to make but we knew that we were going to make a film there so um and then we took a van a van and we were like four or five people like crew and then we start traveling and shooting the film with a super low budget like and um, living adventures and sometimes using locations that we didn't know in advance, and we were stopping there. And uh, I remember one of the locations was this this kind of amusement park that was an it's an abandoned it's an abandoned place we found uh, in know, wash when we were um, like uh, driving by and said so like what wait a second what do you see this thing in the far in the far I said yeah and let's go to see what it, and we find a whole like lodge abandoned lodge. This is amazing, right? And, and and then we we start shooting there, and some shifters come to to claim that they were the owners of the of the place with AK forty seven, you know. Like with yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and 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 then so like, but this place abandoned? No, it's the, it's not the abandoned. It's ours. So and 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 we have to really. It was kind of dangerous, you know, because we have to deal with them. So they want to, I don't know, to get. I think, like, uh, 2,000 euros, something, to $2,000. And said like, but I have 20 in my pocket. <laughs> so you take it or leave it, you know? And finally, they took the 20 euros. They came from 2,000 to 20.
4: I usually ask filmmakers what were some of the most challenging things that they came across, but I can't think of anything worse than two guys with AK-47s.
6: <laughs> well, there was even something worse in Cramps that is like a – uh, Israel, the director of photography, he fall into uh, quicksands in the middle of nowhere there in Wenchi, He fall into quicksands, and it was kind of and 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 then what happened is that we start to have a lot uh, a laugh attack. I mean, it was so ridiculous. How can I gonna explain the, the the parents? No, he didn't die of uh, I don't know like a uh, malaria, no, but no, he he fall into quicksands. So it was, and, and, and it was ridiculous because he had the the mat until the knees, and he was slowly sinking. And it was kind of the get out, you know. It's just no, but I he, I cannot really. I'm trapped. And we started laughing, and and he was kind of sinking, but and finally with the help of some villagers, uh, we took him him out from the from that. But it was kind of this kind of experience of horror and. And laughter, like you don't know whether to, you know, and, and super big effort that we are pulling and we really cannot take him out from there. And we laugh, we, we start laughing even more, you know, like we're quite ridiculous things, but, uh, like the film anyways.
4: <laughs> I know you said that you were looking for locations and collecting locations for years, but how long did it actually take from when you started shooting to when you were done editing for crumbs to come together?
6: well it was quite fast i think uh, we were shooting in june and july and uh, i think in december we had the, uh, the the final cut yeah it was it was quite fast and then we took some time for visual effects we have a very tiny budget tiny and we try to do everything by ourselves so which was good because we learned a lot so i guess uh, I mean, we we premiered it in Rotterdam that year. It was That was in January. So we were shooting in June, and we were premiering in January. So now thinking in, like, back in 2000, like what, what we should do back in 2015, I thought, I think that maybe some more time would be <laughs> a little bit better than the film could be. Maybe even a little bit more powerful, no? But... Uh, the film
4: has played festivals in, I don't know how many countries. It's just been, it, it's shown so many different places. What was the reaction to it? And did you get different reactions in different countries?
6: The reactions were quite similar. I think because it's a film that tackled uh, globalization and it has uh, this kind of post-apocalyptic objects that everybody knows. So the, the questions were quite similar and I traveled, I remember it was 2000, yes, 15, I didn't have any job. My girlfriend uh, left me Fucking <laughs> time as well. So I was quite, yeah, it was very tough times. It was the crisis in Spain, the, the end, kind of the first, the, the, you know, the, the crisis that is started in 2008, 2009, it was difficult. So I was, then I said like, okay, I don't have anything and I, I'm going to travel. So I made 50 trips to accept Asia that I, I didn't go. I, I went everywhere. I went several times to the United States, Brazil, South Africa. It was fascinating because I had the opportunity to meet so many filmmakers and so many people that it was, it was quite, quite great times. It was great times. And I watched a lot of incredible films as well during the, back in time and i don't know that's a good thing so even if we didn't make like tons of money at least i was talking with sergio the producer the other day said so like yeah but man putting money all the trips we did right <laughs> i mean and the good thing is that the festivals normally they pay the ticket and the uh, hotel so i was living from one festival to the other <laughs> The great life, and when I was going home, I didn't have a penny, but anyway. How
4: soon after Crumbs do you start to put together Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway?
6: When I finished Crumbs and I start traveling, I was kind of taking my my, my notebooks and writing ideas, but it it came very, very slowly. I moved to Estonia because in one of the trips, I met my my new girlfriend, <laughs> and I moved with her. And, uh, this shows you the way to the highway came in a very, with a lot of steps because we didn't have a penny again. And so we wanted to shoot first a trailer and with the trailer we made a crowdfunding and, and then with the crowdfunding we applied for funding. So instead of getting all the money and shoot the film, we shot the films in, in, in different kind of, um, steps. So I was, there, I think it was 2017 or 16. I was very bored in Spain. I didn't have a job as I was then. I was living from the a few, I don't know, coins that Crumbs was sending me. And and then with my brother and Israel and Agustin, I said, like, let's start doing something. And we start doing the stop motion, the stop motion parts, like by ourselves. And to, in order to make a trailer, then Sergio, the producer, came back, came again, and said, "Like, why don't we go to Ethiopia and we combine the stop motion with some Ethiopian good footage?" And then we, in order to make a, that that trailer, and then with that we made the crowdfunding. So it took like three years, or so three or four years, yeah. How did you do the stop
4: motion? It looks so interesting. I love the the way that it looks
6: picture frame by frame. I animated uh, Guillermo, my, my brother, and Agustin. They were uh, moving frame by frame. So we divide every movement into whatever frame it is. Like, take the glass of water. It takes, like I don't know, like one second. That means 24 frames. So they were doing the movement super slowly and we were with the photo camera take, taking frame by frame. And it was like, for them, super tiny, super tiny. Sometimes uh, we want to make the whole film like that. Then we we start shooting it. And after, I think it was 10 days of shooting, we put all the material together and we have three minutes of film. <laughs> so it's like, like, fuck it, man. I mean, that's fucking impossible. And we are gonna be making this film for the next 20 years. And also very demanding for them, you know, like, like, like they, they really, after the film, they were really fit, you know, and
3: like,
6: so so stupid. I don't know. It was a kind of a very stupid technique, but somehow with beautiful results.
4: Well, and I love the way that you use the masks too, which is nice. Did that free you up as far as how many actors you could actually have just wearing the same mask?
6: Exactly, that, uh, basically with the mask we could have, I mean, Guille and Agustin could be all of, them, all of the characters, you know, so if Agustin cannot come one of the, one day, I can use another actor. So it, it's very versatile, you know, you can, and at the same time, uh, some people were saying that uh, to get financing and to make the film big, you need to have Hollywood actors. So I said, like, fuck, we, let's put some Hollywood actors. And then, uh, yes, then we use, uh, Robert Redford and, and uh, Richard Pryor. And so now I, when I finished, I said, like, okay, now I have the Hollywood actors you were the managers. How to make it big. I think masks were kind of a good idea, you know?
4: You can't get much bigger than Stalin.
6: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> or, I don't know, like, Pol Pot. I thought also about Franco, but unfortunately, the Spanish dictator, was—he he's not so 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 big, you know? So he's not such a rock star. I mean, history gave us a lot of asphalt.
4: <laughs> in Chromes, Danny is wearing a Superman t-shirt, and then this one, you actually have Batman there.
6: It's... Actually, my personal revenge. As I told you about the objects, no, and the meaning, because I grew up in Spain, but with all these symbols and with all the uh, heroes. And the heroes, I, I'm I'm quite I'm an anarchist, no, and and the heroes disturb me. They always symbolize power in a very stereotypical way. So I want to make that kind of subvert the meaning of these heroes is nice, you know, because um, it gives you certain crea- uh, freedom and creativity, you know. When I was uh, a little boy, the, I used to have these um, Kellogg's, and inside Kellogg's you always have uh, the cornflakes, right? And you, you have these Batman figurines and all this. And, you know, so they invite inv- invade my house. They, they're really aggressive towards entering into your private space. And I think I feel like um, that I can use them, you know, even if they are a trademark or whatever, or you know, they have a copyright. Nobody asks me for my copyright when they these, all these heroes enter in my house and in my private space <laughs> when I was a kid.
4: I take it that you are a Philip K. Dick fan, what with Agent Palmer Eldridge.
6: Yeah, I love Philip K. Dick. And, uh, Palmer Deldrich, Ubik, Kubik, um, uh, many, uh, Throw my tears, the policeman said, and all of these, uh, books, there is an analysis of power. And, and, well, Philip Katie was a little bit paranoid. He was paranoid, actually. But, uh, but, yeah, but being paranoid doesn't cancel totally his approach to power, no? He was always suspicious. That the, the political power is kind of controlling, you know, somehow, like uh, controlling the media, controlling the public opinion. And, uh, and in the case of Philippe Cadillac, even the, the environment, no? controlling the, 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 the kind of the, the net that uh, makes the reality. You know? And uh, yes, I'm very fond of, of
4: him. The version I saw of Crumbs, and I think it's the only version, was in French. And then this one, Jesus, is all in English, but that I love the dubbing that you're doing.
6: The dubbing also solves a lot of problems because we have so many actors from different nationalities. So, And also, I like very much all these films from the 70s that are dubbed. Uh, basically, because you can write a screenplay later. <laughs> and also, uh, you know, Pasolini and Fe- uh, Fellini... And um, you know all this italian uh, Dario argento all these Italian films were up and um they create certain a certain distortion between the image and the sound, and they reinforce the tale and they reinforce the iconographic uh, meaning you No, know, the, the, the okay, they make the film a little bit more cartoonish, not so mm-hmm. realistic. But in this case, uh, I like to be a little bit more cartoonish. I was very much inspired also by the, I don't know, Bosch and the Flemish painters and the Renaissance painters, you know, where it's a little, the, the painters are a little bit naive, but at the same time are representing hell you know, somehow. And I think for the Middle Ages and, and Renaissance, these painters were very horrifying. Now we see them as something as stupid. And something simple, not stupid, beautiful, but not horrifying. But I see them very, very scary. And I want to keep kind of the same, kind of the same approach to Jesus you the Way to the Highway. Somehow this dubbing is naive, is cartoonish, is symbolic, uh, is unreal, but it brings more the film to the towards this the the world of symbol more to the to the world of
4: realism. The whole movie is just so rife with symbols. I mean, literal physical symbols of people's faces. We talked about Batman. I mean, I love the the video game sections that you have. The even the the title you know sitting uh, the background behind you of like the 8-bit animation type style. It's just it's wonderful.
6: We used to say with uh, my friend Jose that I I play the dra- I mean I play music with more is more <laughs> instead of less is more more is more. I like this horror backy of uh, yes Bosch as I mentioned you know I lit thousands of millions of details of ideas so I go with all with my always with my notebooks and and I collect. Thousands of ideas and then I try to find the kind of the the connection between them. And sometimes there is no connection. But (laughs) but yeah. Yeah, I like this exuberance of of the small details.
4: Who are some of your favorite filmmakers or what do you see as some of your influences?
6: Yeah, I, I, I would say that Buñuel is one of my great uh, influences, uh, especially the first films like The Golden Age or Andalusian Dog because they were so free, you know. And uh, so, actually, they remind me to later films like, um, I don't know, Gilliam um, or because uh, they are based on these um, punches, uh, spontaneous punches, no, that uh, come from automatic writing. In the case of Buñuel and Dalí, uh, this automatic writing it seems like a stupid, but actually hides a lot of uh, powerful connections of the mind. No, when you see the um, Golden Age, so is such a strong critic of power. No, and that's why. And basically, Buñuel and Dalí wrote it in. Um, how can I say, like, uh, they, they were collecting experiences of the, of the life in Madrid and their early, uh, the early life, early years in, in Paris later on. And they were collecting all these experiences and putting there one after the other. So I, I like this subver- subversion. And then, uh, well, of course, in, in more in the, into, in, in the American context or situation, um, uh, but I like very much uh, David Lynch, and of course I like um, uh, Divine, and what is it? John Waters, yes, I find it uh, also very subversive, because uh, in all his characters, there is um, uh, how can I say the, um, a queer, you know, a queer sense of uh, understanding the person. You know? The person doesn't have any defined personality, but the personality kind of changes all the time. I and mean, It's very queer, very, uh, fluid, I can say. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I could talk thousands of hours about influences, but basically the Italians, from Sergio Leone to Fellini to and the Spanish, tragic comedy from the 60s, 70s, and from the United States, uh, yeah, the ones I mentioned, David Lynch, uh, John Waters and, and and then from Germany and for more dark dark places I would say Werner Herzog and and some African filmmakers as well Mustafa Hassan wonderful uh, filmmaker he made a cowboy film in Niger with instead of cowboys he had cowboys uh, riding with giraffes so it's like mind blowing like uh, Mustafa it's called The Return of the Adventurer. That's incredible. From the 60s, 70s. Tookie another great surreal film. That's also like a
4: dynamite for the brain. Where is Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway? Is that going to be available on DVD or is it just streaming? I mean, what's the, the plan for that?
6: Well, there are different plans because there are different distribution companies. But for the U.S. and Canada... And UK, we have Arrow. Uh, Arrow is distributing it. So, they, yes, they plan basically the VOD, all TVOD, all digital platforms. And they are planning, I think, uh, August, September. So that's... And besides that, yeah, besides that, we were doing festivals. But a lot of them, and it was fun because I love festivals. It's, uh, because... The audience is so great, you know. You meet uh, all the people that is interested in genre or interested in crazy films, and all you meet them, the, these people, all of them there. And but the festival is quite over because of the corona. Do you
4: have any ideas for your next one, or are you just concentrating on uh, rebuilding your house?
6: No, I'm. <laughs> I try to. to I, I'm gonna try to shoot another film next year here in Estonia. Yes. It's going to be a summer film, an <laughs> erotic summer film, and science fiction.
4: Miguel, thank you so much. This has been great talking with you. I hope we can do it again sometime.
6: Yeah, whenever you want. I mean, I'm, I really have fun, and uh, thank you for your questions, really.
4: The virus is striking again. Damn Russians, they're infecting
0: the whole system. Lieutenant Palmer, Agent Gagano, tonight you will be facing Operation Jungo.
3: The CIA believes that the Soviet Union virus is planning to take over Psycho Book.
0: Your mission is to retrieve
4: samples. Come see this. I've got the virus. We need your assistance right now.
3: Lieutenant! Rome 1, fight!
2: What the hell happened inside? Operation
1: Jungle is now in our hands. The virus is hacking the whole system.
3: Is the CIA aware that you're sending two men to their probable death?
0: No agent dies inside Psychobank. It's just a virtual reality.
4: Here comes the most interesting part of the story.
3: Round two. Fight. That midget is more important than
1: you can imagine. How do I know you're not a figment of my imagination?
4: Don't you see, Agent? Operation Jungle, the CIA, this is just a virtual
3: projection. Wake up, Bugano! <laughs>
4: we are back and we are talking about crumbs or moreover we are moving away from crumbs and going to Miguel Yanso's second feature film which is Jesus shows you the way to the highway which we were talking about this before we took the break about the necessity possibly of having to watch these films more than once and i did watch Jesus shows you the way to the highway twice and it definitely made a lot more sense the second time i watched it because there are – and we talked a little bit about this in, in the interview. This is very Philip K. Dick, and this is very multiple layers of reality that are going on. And so I think there's a third level of reality or like the, our our primary level, which – we don't really get to until the very end of it, until we get to the moment of Jesus showing uh, DT the way to the highway. And otherwise we are in multiple levels of obfuscation, computer simulation, video game kind of stuff. There's just and I love that we are talking about video games using like eight bit kind of stuff. We're using, like 16-bit um uh, soundtrack to this and just th- that we have like voiceover of people going fight <laughs> and these kind of things and we, we are all over the place with this movie and this movie as I was watching it I just wanted to share this with so many people that I just kept thinking god there are so many people I know that would love this movie this movie felt so much to me like the world that I used to live in, which was going down to Baltimore once a year to the MicroCinefest and watching just really kind of fucked up, crazy, funny movies. And I think Jesus Shows You the Way would fit perfectly in that kind of, for lack of a better term, psychotronic film category.
5: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I think I enjoyed it more the first time I watched it Uh, Than when I watched it back-to-back with Crumbs, and I kind of felt like if we're comparing the two, that I, for myself, enjoyed Crumbs a little bit more. But I think that Philip K. Dick connection is probably the reason why I'm no Dick expert.
1: (laughs) But <laughs> I only laughed because Mike did, sir. <laughs> no, <laughs> I would have thought that, that might have
5: been low hanging If food you guys you, hadn't laughed, I would have felt really bad. I have read the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. It's been a, quite a few years and it was a, during a time when I read a lot of his stuff and they all get mushed together because there is a lot going on in each book. Just, I mean, they're fun to read, but you know, no offense to hardcore dick fans. It's, it, it, they can be a huge mess. And when I watched it this second time, I didn't enjoy the mess as much. Now, having said that, it could be because of the week that we've all had prior to recording this. And I may just be overwhelmed. And it was just too much stuff for me this time.
1: You know, I i mean, I kind of said it earlier when we kind of touched on this film a little bit at the beginning. I likewise have watched this film now twice. And similarly to Mark, I came away from this film going, I, I've seen it twice now, and that's good enough for me. I, I don't have any interest revisiting this film. And that's unfortunate because a film like this is, is made for someone like myself. It is... It It is a little tongue-in-cheek. It does kind of play into some things that I like. Mike, you mentioned there are some video game inspirations here. There is a lot of pop culture references, both heavy-handed and both kind of sly and and tongue-in-cheek. And I, again, this is the kind of film that I would have thought would have really struck a chord with me. Unlike Mark, you know, it wasn't it didn't have to do with the kind of the the week we've had, though I can completely understand and sympathize. For me, it's just there's too much going on with not enough purpose through parts of the film. There feel like there are parts of this film where it is just throwing whatever it can against the wall and seeing what sticks. And there's nothing wrong with that when you're clearly an experimental punk filmmaker like Miguel Ionso is. He's just doing, he's just doing it, it being filmmaking and seeing what happens. There's nothing wrong with that. There's really not.
5: And people have, will have already heard the interview at this point, And so they know that he says more is more, which sometimes can be fun. And I, this is a movie I would definitely watch again. Probably would want to watch it with other people, though, instead of sitting alone in front of a computer and watching it. I could enjoy it again. Seeing other people experiencing it for the first time. The things that you're saying, Chris, I mean, that's indicative of, of Dick's novels too. It's like, okay, I've got another whole nother thing I've got to keep track of now. What, where does this all fit in? And that's just how I felt this time watching it. Like, okay, what is, what is Batfro all about? What is, you know, why, why Robert Redford and Richard Pryor as the masks, a couple of the masks I didn't recognize, which kind of bugged me because I, th- I thought, do I need to recognize them? Should I recognize them since they're folded over people's faces? Some- I don't think I realized the first time I watched it, actually, that it was Robert Redford and Richard Pryor until maybe 15 or 20 minutes into the film because um, I hadn't read anything about it or, or done any. I read the interviews or listened to the interview that Mike did at that point. And I was like, oh, okay, that's who those guys are. Why them? Does that is that significant to the film at all? I mean, they were Robert Redford's been in some espionage films, I guess. Right, and he's black and white, while Richard Pryor is in color. Right, yeah, which I didn't even pick up on, but I, you know, it just made me think of I, and I think he mentions it in in the interview with you as well. But there's a an article up from Dread, Dread Central where they he was asked, you know, why the masks? And the point was, well, we you can't do a Hollywood film without big stars, so let's get the biggest stars we can, <laughs> which equals Robert Redford and Richard Pryor. And I was like, well, why again, why those two? Why are those the biggest stars you could think of creating masks for? I mean, it's interesting. I, it doesn't bother me that it's R- Robert Redford and Richard Pryor. I just am curious as to why them.
4: Why them while you're playing with also George Bush and Stalin? It is an interesting uh, mix of characters that you have when you're doing this, but it's also. To me, it's so smart to be able to do an espionage film where you're actually having people change faces. You know, it's, it's better than the, you know, God, like, uh, Mission Impossible 2, where they're constantly doing the face peel gag. And it's like, Oh my God. You know, you did that like what once in the first movie. And now you're doing it 15 times in the second movie. Come on. But with this, it's like, it's so low budget. And such a clever way of getting around that low budgetness and also to do like that stop motion inside of the VR world and then see when people aren't in stop motion that they've kind of fallen out of it. Like that's, that's your clue for a little bit of when you're in one world versus another, which is the way that they move. And then eventually DT Gagano, the uh, Daniel character in this one, he, dies in the Matrix, and then is able to just kind of walk around normally in the Matrix without the stop-motion effect, though he can still put on a mask or take it off, and
5: sometimes his mask will actually do the talking for him. And doesn't the aspect ratio change according to certain locales? I, I sometimes miss that in movies when it's used. I'm not sure why. It's tough when you're not at a movie theater, like when it's on
4: your TV, because... My, I don't know about you guys but my aspect ratio changes all the fucking time and I never really even notice it cuz it's just like okay yeah this this disc is going to look this way this disc is going to look that way if I watch two movies in a row I don't necessarily notice when it's changing from 16 by 9 to 3 to 4 or whatever
5: right and I think with a lot of the stuff that was 3 to 4 on this it was dark so it was sort of hard to tell that it was because you had the black in this in the screen or in the image itself uh, bleeding out to the black you know the black bars on the side i did catch that a little bit and think okay i think the first time i was really confused about time and space and and where specifically dt gagano was in relation to other people but i i picked up on it a lot better the second go around that basically he's dead and in this alternate reality for a good chunk of the film
4: and there are characters that come back that i don't expect to come back like the person who's dancing at the strip club i think that's the person that comes back and helps him out later on who i guess is a drag queen that skydives
5: just to uh save the um the tv yeah the tv the tv that he's in
4: Yeah, that he's caught in the TV for so much of the film. I was just it, like I said, it took me a while to realize, oh, he got saved. He's put on this flash drive and then the flash drive. I love how the flash drive is somehow compatible with this super old black and white <laughs> TV that is the portable TV, but you know, that's what I like too was the mix of kind of going back to crumbs, the mix of the the old and the new, you know, taking this up to date technology and then also mixing it with like, you know, th- those eight bit graphics or the, um, the really rough, um, look of the Psy book that they are, are going into the, the Psycho books CPU and all this. <laughs> I mean, there's just so many different things. It's just like, all right. Yeah. It took me a while before I was able to even begin to sort it out in my brain.
1: And that is kind of where I I was taking a bit of a pause the first time I watched it was it does feel like there is just so much compared to the last film this film inundates you with way like I mean again I get it this is this is borderlining on experimental cinema and experimental film especially when you talk about using stop motion in the way that Miguel Yonso is using it in this film it, it does it gets a little much and. Like we talked about with Crumbs, where you can, it's easier in a film like Crumbs to ascribe meaning to things. In this film, like you mentioned, Mark, why Richard Pryor and Richard Redford? This film's being made in 2019. Those are not the biggest stars in 2019. One of them is actually dead. It's a little odd, and it's, it feels in line tonally with Crumbs in regards to, the message it's trying to tell, but the vehicle that the message is going through is so foreign. Like you said, Mike, it's an espionage film at its heart. Kind of. It
4: does have that dick presence that we're talking about. It has that, are you Quaid? Or, you know, when are you Quaid? Uh, Are these the implanted memories? Or are you Hauser? You know, like, when does one become the other? And I'm glad that DT kind of stays DT for the most part. He does become somebody else in the simulation for a while. But after he gets killed, that kind of falls away and he gets to be himself, which makes it... I don't want to say slightly less confusing because it's not, um, but at least we get to see a little bit more of him. And then you think that his wife is cheating on him, but maybe she's not because in the world above, they're still together and they do have the pizzeria. And then he comes up with the idea that they're going to start the kickboxing academy
5: up there, which is a um, new sport, but I think it's got a good future.
4: This movie is so steeped in, like, 80s and 90s things, this whole idea of the kickboxing academy. I mean, there are just so many goofy things that I love, like having three Shaolin monks that show up and they're all named after Italian
1: food dishes, you know, and, and having Very them- subtle nod to the Teenage Ninja Turtles. Yeah. <laughs> Walk that back. Not at all subtle. <laughs> Not at all subtle. There is the, the, the subtlety in this film is non-existent.
4: Well, and having those giant flies show up with laser eyes and stuff. It's just, and then when the guy takes off his, his head, the fly takes off his head and it's, uh, I, I'm guessing it's, uh, Miguel Yanzo's brother because he's got the same last name and he's just such a cool dude and stuff. And then he's the one that tells DT like, oh, no, no, this is, Part of this other layer, like we are actually in this experiment where we're laying on these beds in a you know a hospital, and so it's my job to get you back out of this and into
5: the real world. That's the entry to the last, final twist of the film, and you mentioned the pizzeria and how many times DT is shown eating pizza or Malin is showing eating pizza, and there are two instances where they're both. I think you mentioned this in your notes, Mike, when DT, I guess, is killed or is dead and he goes to that bar and orders a margarita pizza and he eats it and it's like it doesn't taste good to him. And then later on, Malin is shown eating pizza and kind of doing the same thing. And it it made me think of another Philip K. Dick book, Ubik, where there is time travel and they travel, I want to say, back in time. To the past and everything is flavorless and the cigarettes are stale. And it's because, and this is a stretch. I mean, you know, I'll admit that right now, but it just kind of brought me again back around to Philip K. Dick and how are, is, does this not taste right because they're not in the re- correct universe right now? Well, that's that line that's from the Matrix, Mouse right? in The Matrix, yeah. Right. yeah. Do you know there what this tastes like? It saying, tastes like, like cream of straight wheat.
1: Straight from The Matrix. <laughs> <Yeah>.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Which a lot of people say is, you know, there's a whole, uh, there's a video you can watch online of Philip K. Dick basically laying out the entire plot of The Matrix in whatever, 1980-something, I think. Hey, 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 that is 100% original. Didn't take from anything else but that pizza the whole thing about the pizza i noticed so much more the second time and like okay that's his touchstone to i guess we can say in relation to the logic of the film the actual reality and i liked that 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 was the thing that um he kept encountering and and kept dreaming about and talking about and experiencing and when we get to the end of the film you know that's that's what they're off to do though it does throw you that Philip K. dick twist as
4: far as is this real or not, because there's a moment where and I'm turning I think it's the the person with the Stalin mask takes it off and there's the glowing red eyes and it looks like a cat, and then you see between Molina and DT as they're driving away, there's that same cat is right between them in the van. I'm like, oh, so maybe that that they're not in
1: the real world now. Which I could not have been less of a fan of.
3: <laughs> Look, no, here's
1: the thing, and we I can't remember what we talked about. Ah, we talked, and this is a completely off topic. Well, completely off the sphere of this film. Film we just watched, Prince of Persia, last month. I know, complete stretch. It does something similar at the end. It goes, oh, it was all a dream. None of this matters. And I, I hate that shit. In that movie it was there's a time travel mechanic in the film, and essentially the entire film is undone. I'm not sure I just spoiled Prince of Persia for like the four people that wanted to watch <laughs> it. None of them listened to your podcast, I would assume. I saw the movie, I didn't even remember that. Yeah, but there's there's the whole thing at the end where it's like the entire film has been undone. And this film does something similar where it's like, it was all a dream, or was it?
5: Which I think goes to the ambiguity, the difference between the ambiguity of these two films is you can go ahead and think what you want. Oh, you can think what you want at the end of Jesus Shows You the Way as well. But having that extra little touch does kind of bother me as well for that reason. Like, okay, we're not lean, making it lean in harder in one direction of ambiguity, I guess. Which reality are we in? Or is this a totally different one? In Crumbs, they were, we're not uh, tilting our hand in one direction or another. And are they together or not, or is he dead? I guess now is the question I have to ask about that film. Thanks to Chris, but you're welcome. I guess it's more ambiguous in Crumbs, and I enjoy that more than saying, "Okay, well, here you go." Ha ha! It's not. It, you continue to think, "Okay, I'm what? am what am I supposed to think?" And that can be frustrating.
1: Well, and I mean, look, maybe Miguel Yonso, and I know, Mike, you didn't get to this in the interview, and I haven't seen him saying anything about this, because this is a specific question you would have to ask. Is that ending and showing that disembodied cat head in between them? Is that sowing seeds for ambiguity or is that turning into genre tropes of the time and place that you're trying to pay homage to? Because if it's the latter perfectly okay with it i completely get it if it's the former and you just happen to be paying homage but that wasn't the implicit point or the explicit point then like you just said mark i've got no interest in that that is for me that's lazy and it's it's the kind of ambiguity that i like you said i do not appreciate
4: or it could just be there for the sequel
1: of the options you could convince me of that is not the one i would believe but (laughs) hey you know what it's possible
5: Well, I hope the sequel is just him and Malin, or however we pronounce her name, down by the the, uh, water with their pizzeria on wheels. That movie I want to watch. I actually, uh, I I say that tongue-in-cheek, but that was the part of the story that, at least the second time, I was really trying to grasp onto was their relationship and that dream of his to have a pizzeria, or his dream of helping her with her dream to have the kickboxing uh, yeah. school. Um, So, yeah, I, and I think maybe maybe that was due to watching Crumbs and enjoying the relationship of those two characters and kind of wanting to go back to that simpler kind of storyline and thinking, okay, this is the part that I'm interested in. All this other stuff is really fun and uh exciting and interesting, but this is the thing that is kind of grabbing me maybe emotionally or uh, just as a sub- substance, something of substance that I can grasp onto among, amongst all this other stuff,
1: and I, I like Daniel Tadase better in this in in crumbs than I do in this film as well. Like I, to your point, Mark, like I am more invested in his crumbs character and the relationship between him and Birdie in that film than any characters that he in, he gets involved with in this film. And that goes a long way to getting me invested in the film. Oh, yeah. I
5: had a lot more empathy for him in Crumbs than in this. Not that I disliked his character. He doesn't seem to be made out to be dislikable. And maybe it's the dubbing that has part to do with that as well. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I think that adds an extra layer between you and
4: Daniel or you and any of the other characters is that dubbing. Because it feels like it was all post-synchronized i I think it had to be for him but i think for a lot of people
5: it was all post-sync and it's just like it keeps you at arm's length right which feels like was the point based on the interview you know i've discussed this on my show before and i think you have on yours as well mike that you know with italian the italian films being multilingual and Which I, it still kind of boggles my mind, but as a viewer experiencing that, it does add that layer that can, for some people, be really frustrating. For some people, it adds like a touch of surrealism. It adds a different layer to the film, knowing that, you know, these, the words don't match up. They're all speaking, I mean, they could be speaking Italian, Spanish, English, and German. And I think there's quite a bit of that in this. Also, like he mentioned, you know, you you're not then beholden to your script. You can change things because it doesn't matter what they were saying. Uh you can have the person who's dubbing the character say something completely different if you want to change things. But if for some reason in this, this again, the second time watching it, it wasn't as enjoyable. I wasn't getting that like nostalgia kick, I think, of of watching either kung fu movies or Italian horror films that It just was another it was another layer of disconnect with this film for me. I I don't want to seem overly negative about it because I did enjoy it. I just enjoyed it more more the first time experiencing it the first time than I did watching it for the show. And again, it could be because of an overwhelming week of stuff.
1: Well, I also think the first time I watched it, at least for me, I was more like, holy cow, that's crazy. And that's, isn't that unique? Isn't that fun? And then to your point, Mark, the second time I watched it, I was just like, okay, like now I'm looking for something different. And it's harder to find those things the second time if they weren't there to begin with. And me, I'm
4: going
5: to run out and try to show it to as many folks as I possibly can, because I'm just like, this is great. I would definitely recommend the film. I mean, I've already told my buddy, I, I told him after I watched the first time, like, I I don't know, I think I sent him. Yeah, I sent it to him. And I said, "Watch this," and he did, and he loved it too. So I, I don't want to sound like it's not getting a thumbs up from me. It was just harder to watch this second time for whatever reason, and I may have a totally different experience the next time I watch it, if and if and when I do.
1: I think for me, it was just the juxtaposition against crumbs, and I think that that's I think that that's impossible to not juxtapose it against crumbs, given Miguel Yonso doesn't have the most prolific filmography yet, so these two films you know you know other than his kind of smaller less feature films that he's worked on these are very stark departures from one another
4: it is interesting to watch his shorts and see how some of those ideas get planted in there like night in the wild garden where you see the stop motion being tested out and how that was there. Or, uh, I'm trying to remember the, uh, the, the other one that he had Daniel in where there's also a lot of Nazi Shigerale. symbolism. Yeah. The, that's the one where he's a Nazi, I think. So it's like playing with these symbols is, you know, sometimes they're very, very touchy symbols, but it's like, okay, this is interesting how you're playing with this. I mean, it's, it's no coincidence to me that I saw after my horrible failed attempt at trying to interview Fernando Arabal uh, to, that I'm now on, like, his multiple um, newsletters <laughs> because of, of emailing with him. And he was, as far as I know, because it's all in Spanish and French and I speak English poorly, I much less any other language, he was singing the praises of Yanso. So it's just like, okay, Arabal is really picking up on the use of the surrealism in here and knowing how powerful some
5: of these symbols can be, especially when you fuck around with them. I, I You know, and I thought it was Chigger Ale for some reason.
1: Well, no, it's, it's Shigarale. Okay, because it was. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, we can say it the way it's hey, Chigareo.
5: No, I actually thought it was like the name of a, of a, a beer. Yeah, me too. Be a beer, to be honest with you, because it was it's separated. I think on the title card, I could be mistaken, but I, 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 you do see that that clone of Hitler character kind of come out in crumbs and in Jesus shows you the way. You know, the subversion of these symbols and what does. Hitler symbolized, you know, like ultimate evil in most people's mind and and here the clone of Hitler is just this short-statured uh man with with a ravaged body that people just kind of ignore and and make fun of. And not even really make fun of in a in a nasty way. They just you know, he's the butt of their jokes and stuff and you know, he likes to take things to task, and that definitely runs through maybe not so much the night in in the wild garden, but in Chigarale and Crumbs and Jesus, they definitely do.
1: Well, and you see Miguel Yonso, I mean, similarly, like you just mentioned with Hitler, kind of the epitome of what many would consider, myself included, to be evil and yes, I will disavow white supremacy. Uh you have something like Batman in Jesus shows you the way who often seen as kind of the paragon of good and he fights for good. I mean, he's a vigilante, but you have him in that film playing the villain and he's trying to oppress the people. And it's Miguel Janzo talks about it in that interview with you, Mike, where he's talking about he he's not a fan of superheroes and heroes because of kind of unchecked power and the use of that power. And it is interesting to watch him subvert expectations with what your expectations are with something like Hitler and Chigarale versus Batman and Jesus shows you the way it's very, it's a very smart uh, subversion as opposed to lazy subversion.
5: Well, and I like how he mentioned that it's kind of shoved down your throat, you know, finding buying a, a pack of cereal and there's a toy in there. You didn't buy the toy. You didn't ask for the toy, but here's your Batman toy kid take it, play with it. And you could say that, I mean, that's a complaint about American culture in general and how a lot of countries fight against it, um, aggressively, you know, um, and he mentioned again in the article about how, uh, where he filmed, you know, McDonald's, there's no McDonald's, it's not allowed. And, and, uh, so I think part of that is an attack on not just, uh, you know, saying, well, this is the, the ideal, uh, good but also like this is consumerism at its worst and getting things that you don't even ask for you know we're going to shove batman down your throat kids in other countries that kind of brought that maybe up a little bit you know and going well why is bat throwing here well that's that's kind of why and maybe you don't get that unless you <laughs> speak to him yourself or read an article where he mentions it but um you know, I probably wouldn't gather that myself without having listened to Mike's interview with him.
4: I'm glad he saves it for the interviews and not just bashes us over the head with stuff. <laughs> just like, hey, look at look at what I'm doing here. You know, like let's fight against consumerism and just like, you know, screams it at us. He's definitely is a, a lot
5: more subtle than that. Thank goodness. Yeah, so you can go away with the movie thinking, oh, this is just a riff on, you know, pop art. I mean, I, I kind of saw, you know, the Batman and Robin the way they were the, having the female Robin. It made me think of Andy Warhol and the pictures of him with Nico as Robin and him as Batman. And, you know, I got Hodorowski out of this film in, in a number of different places and um maybe not Lynch so much, but that makes me think of a night in the wild garden where it really reminded me with the lights flickering and and the, i guess it's stop motion as well it seems like it's a little bit different than the stop motion in jesus shows you the way but that is reminiscent of the episode 8 of twin peaks the return with that kind of flashing light and it's almost seems like it's missing frames or something with, with the lumber. I don't know what, I can't remember what they're called. The lumberjack guys at the gas station. Got a light. Yeah. They got a light guys and there's smoke coming in and out and lights flashing and it's real. And the camera's moving real herky jerky. It just made me think of that. Not that that's in Jesus shows you the way, but I think that Lynch, I mean, he says as much in the interview that Lynch is an inspiration as well.
1: And you can see the Lynchian stuff going on. Thankfully, it's not super heavy handed. Like some directors try to do what Lynch does and fail at it horribly. And I mean, there are I mean, there are directors who try to approach surrealism like David Lynch did, you know, approaching it with a slightly Midwestern sensibility and they fail at it. And You know Miguel Yonso coming from another country and seeing Lynch as an inspiration. You see it in—I would say—you see it in Crumbs more than you see it in this film. This is a little bit more kind of zany surrealism, a little bit more bonkers surrealism as opposed to kind of a reserved surrealism, as in Crumbs. Whenever we talk about
4: artists who fail at doing what they're setting out to do, I always think of Harmony Kareen. I'm just like, that guy, everything that, he he's he's the opposite of King Midas. Everything he touches turns to shit, and there's just just nothing. I have yet to see Beach Fum, I have yet to see Spring Breakers, but when I tried to watch Trash Humpers, and Gummo, and all that shit, it's just garbage. And I'm just like, Just stay away from me. And then when I would see him in interviews, I was like, what the fuck is this kid's problem? He just seems like an absolute moron who managed to somehow be in the right place at the right time. And sorry, I'll get off my soapbox about Harmony Kareem. But he just always seems like the opposite of people that are are successful at what they're trying to get across.
1: Well, and if uh, David Letterman is to be believed, Harmony Kareem Harmony will never have anything to do with David Letterman again, <laughs> because I mean, I mean, there was a time where Harmony Kareem was essentially banned from the show uh, for his conduct. Uh,
4: tell the folks about your, your book, uh, A Crack-Up at the Race Riots.
5: <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this, by the way, is why they invented childproof caps. <laughs> um, it's my first novel i want to write a, a are you a novelist you're a yeah.
4: filmmaker what i guess it doesn't make any difference you're just a creative uh,
3: entity yeah.
5: i like to, i just work a lot and um mm-hmm. um i wanted to write a, the great american novel and, or just a, or a novel i just well i just wanted it to be american i stopped at gummo so i i haven't seen anything past then either and that was hard to watch i walked out I walked out, and then I almost got into a
4: fistfight with a girlfriend of a friend of mine who was just uh, insisted that I was a
5: complete jerk for walking out of that film. I was like, nope, I don't think I am. See, I think the diff- big difference is with David Lynch is this is just how his brain works. I mean, if you listen to enough interviews or watch him long enough, it's just what's going on up there. And when you try to do that, like someone like Harmony Korine appears to be doing, it ain't going to work.
1: Well, you're either operating on that level or you're attempting to. I mean, I like you just said, Mark, I fully believe that David Lynch, I mean, and there's nothing I've ever seen to lead me to believe the contrary. David Lynch is David Lynch all the time.
5: Uh, this is how his brain works. I mean, I think that's you watch interviews and you see you see this normality. But the, th- the th- when he expresses the ideas that he has, you realize, OK, this is just how he he thinks of things Um, you can't replicate that. And, and when you do, it usually fails. There's a Ryan Gosling's movie. I can't remember what it's called. The one that he directed that I watched about 15 minutes of. And I'm like, Oh, he's trying to make a David Lynch film and turned it off because it was so blatantly apparent that that's what he was doing. It's his, I think it's his only directorial feature. David
4: Lynch isn't turning this stuff on. You know, he is that way all the time. Like I was uh with, with a friend of mine who I won't name and he worked with Lynch briefly and he was saying that when he was over at his house, uh Lynch had his own personal entomologist on the phone with him. That's the one that studies bugs, right? Not language. Yes. Okay. And Was like asking him all of these questions about ants because David just wanted to know. And he was doing an art project with ants. And that's just the the thing. Like he is always on, always doing something, always creating, trying to create, having these projects that he's always working on. It's not just that he's doing it
5: for the cameras. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you can watch the stuff that he's doing on his YouTube channel right now and and you're going to get the same kind of uh, you know you're gonna feel the same stuff
1: so and and i felt the same way when you were talking to miguel yanso this, this 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 comes easy to him you heard him say it in that interview that he just writes down the things that he thinks are interesting or weird or funny and works off of that and cohesive narratives can come that way Uh, You know, a spark of an idea does lend itself to an entire cohesive narrative with crumbs, a little less so than Jesus shows you the way to the highway. But at the same time, they're both also trying to do separate things. They feel very much left and right brain of Miguel Yonso. Like one, you know, one is a little bit more metered and the other one's just like, yeah, there's stop motion and there's video games and there's ninjas with names of Italian pasta. Like, of course, there is makes perfect sense.
5: Well, and I think, you know, if if part of his inspiration or uh, if part of it was to kind of create a PK Dick like movie, I think he accomplished that uh, perfectly. I mean, it's probably one of the best examples of Philip K. Dick on film that isn't based and probably more so than anything that's based on any of his work. I got a lot more dick out of this than I did something like Screamers. All right, even Minority Report, which is a movie I happen to enjoy, but if you read the short story, I mean, it's just like not even close to the same thing. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview
4: for next week's show.
3: If you have a friend
2: on whom you think you can rely, you are a lucky man. Michael Travis. If you found the reason to live on and not to die, you are a lucky man. Preachers and
3: poets and scholars don't know it. Temples and statues and steeple won't show it. If you've got the secret, just try not to flow and stay a lucky
2: man. A lucky man. If you found the meaning of the truth in this whole world, you.
1: like pearls instead of chains. You are a lucky man. This is epic. Cakers and bakers and talkers won't you. Teachers yeah. and preachers will jump by and sell you. When no one can tempt you with heaven or hell, you be a lucky man. You're all dead. i won.
4: Mm. Goodbye, Trey. That's right. We'll be back next week talking about Lindsay Anderson's Mick Travis Trilogy. Until then,
5: I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Mark and Chris. So, Mark, what is happening in your world, sir? You know, I wish I had a good answer for that, and I don't. I have no idea what, if anything, new will be out at this time in December. Uh, all I can say right now is maybe have a peek back at old episodes of Wake Up Heavy. That is, wakeupheavy.com. Uh, SoundCloud forward slash wake up heavy and iTunes and all the other wonderful places that you can listen to podcasts. Uh, maybe I'll get that angel heart barfly double feature out by then, but I'm not uh, hedging my bets. And Chris, how about you? What's going on with you, sir?
1: Well, we just wrapped up uh fantasy film month where you joined me, Mike, to talk about uh Lord of the Rings, the, the, the original trilogy, not the Hobbit cash grab or hobbit cgi nightmare which you could just say hobbit cg cash grab or cgi we we talked about the backsheet one right we're not talking about those peter jackson films yeah no we didn't talk about the live action we're only talking about the rankin and bass lord of
4: the rings films oh okay even that one all right i mean that, that's on brand for us
1: it sure is it sure is on brand for us uh can't go a little longer without mentioning Rankin on bass a podcast that you and i do with our good friend richard haddam uh so i'm on that podcast culture cast we're talking about body swap movies uh kurt cameron is in one of them unfortunately that's uh that's that's a thing you can go check out at culturecast.com or you can follow me on twitter at casualty underscore chris
4: I have an article about body swap movies that I will be sending you shortly, so you can pretend to read it and say that was very good, Mike.
1: You and I both know I have read everything you've ever sent to me, including a book that you sent to me in person that I read like in an evening's. So, <laughs> so, but this I will probably ignore. Well, thank
4: you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you.
1: Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net,
3: and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.